Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, where we talk to our greatest movie makers about the art and craft of, yes, making movies. My name is Tim Malloy. This week, please brace yourself for some lovely accents. First, I talk to Alan Cumming. We talk about everything from his roles on the CBS shows The Good Wife and Instinct to his unforgettable quote-unquote small part in Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. We also talk very briefly about his role as Nightcrawler in X2, which is the best X-Men movie, thanks in no small part to him. Then I talk with two Pope screenwriter Anthony McCartan about how he told the story of two very different pontiffs, played by Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins. Astonishingly, McCartan wrote the parts for three of the last five winners of the Best Actor Oscar, Remy Malek, Gary Oldman, and Eddie Redmayne. I spoke with Alan Cumming at the Scad Savannah Film Festival, which invited him because he's fabulous. I mean, you'll, you'll hear the interview. And also to pass along some of his wisdom and stories to young film students. Early in our conversation, a loud bus went by. We just tried to roll with it. So with the limited time we have, I thought the first thing I should ask you is if you can explain the complete continuity of the X-Men movies after you left. <laughs> well, that would be impossible as I've seen none of them. <laughs> as I've not seen a single one. You are at a great point career-wise. We're talking at the SCAD Savannah Film Festival where you're imparting a lot of your knowledge to students. You're at the point where you're still doing so much and so many fresh things, but you're also in a position to offer advice. I mean, I think as you get older, you just, by just being a human, you tend to become more of a mentor just because you've got more experience and there's more people in the world who are younger than you who are curious. So, but of course, like I said before we started recording, I feel a bit like a cult leader today because I've been, I was literally asked what is the meaning of life in, in one of these uh, <laughs> forums with the students. And um, I have a lot of opinions about that. I mean, there's things that I am asked about that I'm very happy to talk about. I mean, I'm happy to talk to young people about what I think is important and not just about acting. I mean, mostly when I say, when I'm asked about acting, I, I say like, don't, don't use the word process. Don't use the word method. It's not. It's neither of those things. It should just be like kids playing. Yeah. So it's not really the thing to say at a school of the performing arts where there's teachers spending months talking about process. But there we are. And then I also think it's. I mean, I'm. I'm also able to say to people things like you know, make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure that you take part in the political process and look at what's happening in this country and let's make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And about being kind and being, making sure that everyone's voice is heard. Things like that I think are, it's great, I like that. But in terms of my uh, work, it's a bus. <laughs> There's a bus beeping. There's a bus beeping outside. In case you thought we were in a, going on whilst a fire alarm well, was public happening. transportation is good for, uh, good for our entire society. I'm all about public <laughs> transportation. I love it. Um, but also in terms, <laughs> in terms of, uh, my work, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going into a different sort of um, bracket uh, in terms of age and uh, there's new things opening up to me. And it's, it's funny, like, I, I don't feel my age. I don't feel, nobody does, I suppose, but I've, it's just funny, I'm going to do this Beckett play in London next with um, Daniel Radcliffe and hmm. I'm kind of playing an old guy. And, um, and then after, then the next thing I've got kind of, as a, big sort of challenge in my future is a dance piece. I'm going to make my solo dance debut in 2021 when I'll be 56 years old. 
outstanding. Doing, yeah, it's nuts. It's not. It's but it's it, but it's sort of interesting in that I've chosen to do something way outside my comfort zone, both in terms of the content, but also you know at my age physically, it's going to be very 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 difficult. And I went to a dance class at the Paul Taylor Dance Company, and I was definitely the oldest person there by 30 years. <laughs> well, there's also people who are 30 years younger than you who are in nowhere near as good of shape and have, don't have the experience and everything else. So there's that. It's yeah. how you feel. Exactly. And I mean, I think just, you know, you, you listen to your body. You know, you listen to yeah. in all ways. But I also, you know, I, I'm also, I have other things going on. Like I've got a production company now. I have a bar. My bar in a New York club coming, which I really, really love. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, it's a cabaret bar, and I just love having that sort of n new interests. You always seem like you're having fun. And when you mentioned the meaning of life, I thought about the meaning of life recently. I forget what harrowing thing happened or what I saw. But the moral I got was just have more fun. Mm. I mean, is, has that been kind of a driving philosophy for you? Totally. I mean, I think... Yeah, you know, we could all be gone tomorrow. I, I, I feel, you know, my, I think sometimes it can, it can appear flippant or um, flighty or something. And I'm not the, those things. But I, I think I've understood from way, way long ago how important fun is as a component in your life. Yeah. And especially when you do things that are, you know, I, 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 for me, it's ve I'm very good at letting go. I let go of things, you know, when I, to have fun. I can relax very easily. It's not yeah. an issue for me. And I think it's a, a great skill to have, especially when you do things that are very dark. And a lot of my work is very dark. Yeah. Even though I'm kind of a fun person, I realize I choose these really intense, bleak things to do sometimes, especially in the theater, actually. Or I delve into places that are, you know, pretty tough to to countenance but I can get out of them quickly I've learned how to do that and one of those ways is to make sure that, that I leave them and have fun afterwards and I've tried and I realized that's something that especially in America people aren't good at letting go they're not it's not it's sort of seen as a negative thing or has been and I feel that I, I I'm good at encouraging people to let go I a new thing I've started to do is <laughs> DJing I, nice. get, I sometimes get these DJ gigs now and I it's partly through because of club coming that People have seen me doing it, but I love seeing a dance floor fill up and people just let rip. Yeah. And it's about not having self-consciousness with your body, not caring if people think, why are you dancing to that tacky pop song? Just letting go. Mm -hmm. And of course, how you do that is, is being the leader. I danced, I'm dancing to them too. And I think it's an interesting thing. If you look at the model of a DJ, you go to clubs or bars and the DJ is not dancing. Hmm. The DJ is just standing there twiddling some knobs, probably not doing anything actually, because most of the time they do that, it's just pretending. Beat matching. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, they're not, they're sort of removed from the process they want you to take part in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good sort of thing to remember that if you want people to experience something or be affected, you have to show them what to do. And so that's it kind of become a good sort of metaphor, I think. You have a great quality where you can make things that are dangerous feel safe and you can make things that are safe feel a little bit dangerous. I'm thinking <laughs> about like a CBS show mm. where you gave so much edge and so much cool to the good wife. Mm. And we're definitely my favorite part of that show. Oh, it, it does seem like you're a little tired of being recognized for that because you've done so many other things. 
Oh, I'm not tired of it. I'm not tired. No, I think it's great fun doing that. I mean, just being recognised in general is a bit tiring. I mean, just you, you yeah. know, you just just every single day of your life, just to be constantly people freak out in front of you. It okay. gets it's difficult. Oh, it's not difficult. It's just, you know, it's not how I thought things would turn out. <laughs> how did you think they would turn out? Oh, uh, I don't know. I just. Oh, I don't know. It's been it's been like this so long. But what I mean is, it's not my favourite thing. It's not. I, it's not. I'm not. I'm. I'm not ungrateful. I'm not. I understand what happens. It's, and it comes from a great place of people admire you and uh, all that. But just in terms of how it affects your daily life, it's a pain in the ass. And I'm, so it's not. A, and it's not about one specific thing or like the good wife or anything. Because I used to be able to tell when people would come up to me. I used to be able to tell which part of my career they were going <laughs> to. See, and now I can't. It's too, I guess I'm just older and there's so many things. And sometimes people come up and then, you know, books, writing books, people, that's a new thing relatively. And then when people come up to talk about that too. And then but my favorite thing happened recently was I was having lunch in New York in an outdoor cafe and um, this lady came up to me. And I always think it's, I get pissed off when people come up when I'm meeting and things like that. You know, and yeah. people say things like, I never do this. And you go, but you're doing it now. Exactly. Or like, I hate to interrupt you, but but you are. <laughs> um, anyway, she came up and she said, uh, Alan, I just want to thank you so much for the knitting night at Club Coming. <laughs> and we have, this, <laughs> we have a, an early evening on a Tuesday. We have a, It's called Knit at Night. And we have people just come and knit. And there's a, there's a teacher and there's a, a, a drag queen who's uh, uh, really great and who hosts it. Um, and uh, this lady was goes to the goes to our knitting thing, and she was coming up to sort of thank me for having this service. That's that was a first. Are you one of those fake extroverts? Because that's what I am. I mean, I'm really an introvert, but I'm willing to pretend to be an extrovert in order to survive in the world. Yes. So I mean, you're really. Is I, your I know how to do it, and I'm, I I I reach a ceiling with it sometimes. Like when you do. Like I did a press tour this summer for Instinct, actually, in the spring yeah. in Europe. And it was like two and a half weeks of every day being Alan Cumming. Yeah. And at dinners and blah and blah and festivals and chat shows, talk shows. And, it, and, it, and um, when I got home, I was really stressed out. I was I really like I needed to have time on my own. And I. But like, you know. I think people think because you can do that. I mean, I'm, I am a, a, a sure. chatty, affable person, but I'm not. It's not. I don't want to jump on a table and sing a song. I don't want to stand up and, you know, I'm not one of those types. Yeah. And I get shy as well. I get shy. I can if I'm not. You know, I, I think about the way I do deal with it as I think of myself as a character. And actually, ironically, mm. I'm now being asked to play myself in a in a couple of things. I did uh, Broad <laughs> City this summer. Was it last year? I can't remember. And like the girls wrote a, me in it, you know, like so it's a, it's a version of Alan Cumming. It's not, it's a kind of hilarious, heightened version of me. But I sort of think of myself in that way too. I think of, I think of, there's me, and then there's Alan Cumming, and the, and Alan Cumming goes out and is like, hello everybody, hi, yes, yes I'm here, that's right, yes, oh thanks so much, you know, and um, it's just it's hard when, I you know, you, there's a thing that I've. I heard I've never dared to do, but Meryl Streep does did mm. this. A friend of mine did a movie with her, and they were in the supermarket buying stuff for their dinner. And um, this lady came up to Meryl and asked her for an autograph or a photograph or something. And Meryl went, "Oh gosh, you know, I'm so sorry, but I'm not working right now." 
Oh my God. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. And I think it's, <laughs> I, do, I think that's, because that's what I think actually. There's certain times when I think I am completely available to you. Yes, I'm here. I am a public commodity right now. I'm Alan Cumming. And then there's other times when I'm just like walking my dogs or, you know, the worst time when anyone asked me for a photograph when I was literally picking up my dog's poop. Mm. And the man said, can I have a photo, Alan? I was like, mm, not right now. <laughs> but I, I might, I don't know, I'm a bit too, I would be a bit too scared to try Meryl's thing, but I think it is great. I love that. If I could ask, because this is the 20th anniversary of Eyes Wide Shut, oh. and you talked about your experience playing a hotel desk clerk on Eyes Wide Shut, um, a small but you said perfectly formed role. Yeah. Uh, what did you learn from that experience, working with Stanley Kubrick, working from all those people? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing I learned would be there's no small parts, just small actors. Because that's like one, you know, I go to things. I was at a, did a talk in Boston the other day or the other week, and they showed two clips hmm. of my things I was in. One of them was that, that hmm. scene. So it's a huge thing in my career, even though it's like maybe, you know, four minutes yeah. or something, maybe longer. Um, and so I think that was a really good, I mean, you know, there's that, there's no small parts, just small actors. That's a sort of aphorism. But I, I it actually is true. And, I, and the thing I really got from from it was that I, I guess I was a little jaded at the time when I did it. I was a little, I'd, I'd had a couple of months off. I'd done loads of films and, and it was you know kind of having a bit of a crazy time. And then I did the Spice Girls film yeah. immediately after working with Stanley. And it, and it just, I just, the detail and the zeal that he had for the tiniest of gestures and the intonation, it made me so interested in, in acting again. Hmm. Like every single time we went for a take, I knew exactly why we were doing it, for what, because that's the thing that's, you know, you, I don't know if people realize that a lot of the time, my least favorite thing is to hear a director shouting, that was perfect, let's go again. You think, well, why are we going again if it's perfect? Tell me what you want. You know, often they just go again and they don't tell you why. And Stanley would, in, in such minute detail, tell me what he wanted. And of course, that's nirvana for an actor. You know, you actually yeah. to, to aim to do a tiny little detail. It's exciting. And so it made me realize that, A, there's no small parts, but just that how exciting acting can be. Do you remember any specific detail that he wanted you to do again? Um, well, the <laughs> I mean, it's so over the top, that performance. And I, I kept saying to him, oh, Stanley, that's too much. Mm. He's like, no, go on, do it. He was like goading me on. But there's a thing when I do, I say, they, the men, they came back. They came in this morning, big guys. And I do a gesture like this, like with <laughs> my hands, like a, like I'm doing... A penis size, yeah, right. That's and I, I, and I did that, and I thought that was because surely he was going to tell me not to do that. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He said, Nick, I think one take I didn't do. It. He goes, "Why are you not doing the thing with your hands?" I said, like, "Oh, Stanley." It, it was so hilarious, like me kind of going, "Stop it, Stanley! You're going too far." <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, and, I, and 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 actually, you know, there's a saying in that I, I was talking earlier about how. Uh, Quite a few of the things that I think about acting are sayings and lessons I learned from when I was a baby actor in Scotland. And the first plays I did with these sort of salty, salty dog Scottish actors, you know, ones that would come into the dressing room with a pint of lager and start doing their makeup. And um, 
there's a saying which is, uh, you can be as big as you like as long as you mean it. And I absolutely agree with that. Like I think that performance I give in Eyes Wide Shut and many other performances I've given are huge. But <clears throat> I'm, I'm authentic with them, I'm meaning them. They're not just, it's not, you know, you, you can be flashy, but you have to, it has to come from a place of authenticity. And that's when you realize that, it's quite, you know. Because also, you know that thing when you, you see something in real life and you say, oh gosh, if this was in a movie, it would be too much. Right. That's, that's, that's what I want to try and emulate. <laughs> that was Alan Cumming. Thank you to him and to the Scad Savannah Film Festival. And now, Anthony McCartan. We talk about Two Popes, which premieres on Netflix this Friday, and the research and imagination that go into his Oscar magnet stories. We also talk about Freddie Mercury and the Bee Gees. He spoke to us by telephone from New York City. One thing that impressed me the most about this movie is how you use humor. Yeah, my my um, mo vis a vis humor is really just to make things lifelike, and as you know, I try to put in the same percentage of humor in a movie as as I perceive there is in real life. <laughs> um, so it's it's just I'm just trying to be realistic because um, it always strikes me that any movie that's devoid of, of humor is um, loses its claim to be realistic in most cases. You have such a heavy story here. Are there things that you did besides that to try to make the medicine go down a little easier for viewers? No, not particularly. I think, um, you know, this had to be done in a very candid way. This is a very ancient institution. There's a lot of vested interests. There's certainly a lot of sensitivity, but the the task remains the same, that you have to responsibly... um, uh, articulate what the, the the issues are in this in this institution, and and it's a, it, it is one that is in the gravest crisis of of its life since the, since the Reformation, um, and that could not be um, swept aside or, or ignored. So it's there, but it's not it's not ultimately a, um, a movie about looking at the church's past. It's more about looking what uh, asking the question about what its future would be. Are you Catholic yourself? I am, yeah. Yeah. I understand the Vatican has had a copy of this script for a while and has mm. apparently seen the film and apparently doesn't have many issues with it, if I understand correctly. Yeah, that's what we're starting to hear. It's very early days, but, um, you know, the, they didn't say yes, but they didn't say no. So we, um, we've sort of proceeded and, um, you know, courted there their uh, support. Um, we needed their support in some regards, and they, it's being provided. We had access to, to archival footage that we use in the film, um, and um, you know that was very important. Um, we never expected that we'd be given access to film a drama in the Sistine Chapel. We know that that would never work, so we um, we, we we built our own Sistine Chapel. And um, but uh, no, it's. Um, been uh, a, a, an ever-warming relationship, and I, uh, I gather that they're pleased, uh, stroke, relieved about the film. <laughs> when you're writing the script and you're placing a scene in the Sistine Chapel, are you thinking, I'm killing my chances of this actually being made because it'll be so expensive? Yeah, I, that's kind of true, but but if you, if you as a writer, if you... Um, if you think that way, you're kind of dead before you begin. You've got to you've got to write the scene in the optimum setting, and then 
yeah, you may have to make compromises once you once you realize what your budget is. But in, in the first instance, you should just you know choose the optimal location. And so you know, but it's it's fun to sit down on a Monday afternoon or something and write interior Sistine Chapel. You know, you create you know you're creating a rod for someone's back. But um, but that's a that's a, that's a battle for another day. Are there other things that sort of weigh on you as you're writing something like this? If I were writing this, and you know, I I believe in God, I believe in not Catholicism but Christianity, and if I were writing about these issues, I would constantly in the back of my head just be worried about my soul. Does that <laughs> did that yeah. enter your mind in any way? No, it didn't. I, I mean, I was raised in an intensely Catholic family, and and many of the themes and issues in the, in, in this movie of of uh, tolerance, uh, of of sin, of atonement, um, um, of mercy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I grew up with it, and, and um, it was part of the sort of intellectual, sort of social, religious background of my childhood. Um, so they they were these these themes were available to me and didn't feel alien or um, out of bounds. Um, to me, they were quite native to me. So, um, you know, the writing came quite smoothly once I'd done the, the the research. Can you talk about what that research entailed? I know that it started with you doing some Googling just to figure out how long it's been since the last time there were two two popes living at the same time. Yeah, yeah, but it's, uh, that that was that was sort of the, the first initial hook. Um, the question of um, why this ultra conservative um, German pope had, had done something so untraditional um, as to resign, that then set me on a sort of investigative path, looking at both, you know, the backgrounds of both of these two living popes, and um, uh, and it, it ends up, you know, being about I guess twenty five different books in the end, wow. you know, that I, that I read and. Um, then I started talking to ever to anyone who um, had a, any knowledge of the, of the men, um, either direct experience with them or secondhand. Um, and then there was um, translating documents for, or newspaper articles from foreign languages, from German or or Argentine newspapers. Um, and bit by bit, you you form a, a picture starts to form and. There's a point, hopefully, as the writer, when you say, I have them. I think I know. I think I have them now, these characters. And that's when you begin. And uh, and you, uh, you know, you don't look down from that point. You just, um, you know, you have to trust yourself and uh, and um, be quite uninsured in, in your approach. And um, if, if, if doubt creeps in, if you... You start feeling intimidated by by the subject matter, or the you know the the the, the burden to get it right. Then suddenly you're not free, and you need to feel very free to, to write well. You talked about the moment when you thought, "I've got them." Can you say what that moment was for you for each of the popes? Yeah, it happened in different times. I I, I got um, Francis quicker than I got Benedict, I think because my sympathies more naturally align with that of Francis. I'm kind of politically centre-left, and and so I, I knew what his side of the argument would be because, you know, it's one I often advance myself. But the, then, um, but the eureka moment with Benedict really came came later. Um, um, he was harder to love and took longer. Um, 
Uh, but but it did happen where I suddenly started to get him, yeah. and and realized that you know the value of his position, which which stands for um, orthodoxy and tradition and unchanging eternal truths, because that goes to the heart of why we go to churches in the first place. Um, we want to go to a, uh, in a chaotic world. You want to go to you you look to churches for. A, a kind of um, a, a oasis or a, an escape where what was true yesterday is true tomorrow. It's sort of enshrined in that line I use in the in the movie that the, the church that's married to the spirit of the age will be a widow in the next. Mm. Um, and that's that sort of encapsulates the Benedictine view. And you've talked about it as a metaphor for what's happening in the United States now where there's sort of a left and a right and there's not a lot of, let's say, center left or center right. Mm. No, it's. It, I mean, as I speak to you, there's a. I'm speaking from a hotel room in New York, and in the background, um, the TV is playing set the uh, Senate impeachment hearings. Yeah. And um, you know, occasionally I turn up the volume and uh, and listen to this extremely polarized um, debate, um, which is uh, combative and pugilistic, and it's all about trading blows and. And there's um, very, very little tolerance or listening to the other side, and uh, and that's sort of at the heart of this movie is that you know sometimes um, the the talking should stop and we should listen a little more, and um, and it's and it's through listening that um, that the real dialogue can begin. I think there's a sense on both sides that going to the center is sort of selling out in a way. It's sort of abandoning your core principles and giving a little bit too much ground to the other side. But these are two men who really coexist with completely different worldviews, but still coexist. Yeah, I mean, once um, there's a there's a line of Yeats's where he says the center has not held and. Uh, um, Another line in the same poem, he said, "The what is it? The best of us lack all conviction, and the and the worst are full of a passionate intensity." Mm. Um, and uh, it seems like the political debate in the world today is is full of passionate intensity, and and um, and you know, the advocates for the middle ground have fallen silent, and um, and but inevitably that's that's where the progress is going to come from the middle. Um, so when all the shouting dies down, you know, inevitably that it's the it's the resilience of that center center energy, central energy that will carry us forward. It always has, and it always will. It does seem really hopeful that two people who disagree on so much can bond over, you know, soccer, Fanta, and pizza. Yeah, well, you got to bond over something, and often that's um, that's how um, you know peace and and communion is found through through some you know you grab onto the first sort of. Um, the beginnings of mutual understanding, and it might be sport, it might be a shared joke, it might be a meal, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know the I, whole idea of breaking bread with someone um, is that we're all, you know, it, it expresses our, our, our common human bond and our, our um, how much we have, much more we have in common than than what, than what separates us. Uh, how do you create a scene like that? Is it just how you would like to see people cooperate, or is it? Did you actually hear from someone who said, "Oh yeah, this pope really did like pizza," and obviously the current pope loves soccer? Yeah, no, it's it's all it's all based in in deep research, and uh, 
I met a guy, for example, um, on the sub. There's a detail in here where I have Benedict uh, drinking banter at, at, at his dinner table, <laughs> and that comes from the fact that I met someone who had actually had a dinner with him when he was cardinal in Munich and uh, archbishop in Munich, and um, and uh, and uh, he had uh, opened a bottle of Fanta, and when asked why he was drinking Fanta, was told that well during World War Two. In Germany, uh, American products were banned, and uh, therefore Coca-Cola was not available. And but Fanta, for some reason, was. <laughs> and um, and the and young people at that time developed lifelong um, uh, passion for for Fanta. And he to this day he still has it at his dinner table. So um, you know that, that that was a it's one of those sort of delicious details that speak to you know an element of character and i loved it because it's it showed a kind of innocence a sort of childish innocence in the man yeah. um uh that uh that was in keeping with it with um with his scholarly academic qualities uh you know the, a man out of world out of out of time out of the normal social world um who had um you know, developed um, intellectually, but um, was not particularly a charismatic man of the people. You know, there were a couple of other wonderful humanizing footholds that helped me latch onto the story uh, very early on. And one of them is, of course, that incredible opening scene. Can you, if, if you don't feel it's spoiling too much, can you kind of explain what that scene is and how you came up with it? You mean the telephone call? The Pope calling to book a flight and uh, the the person at the other end of the line thinking this must be a crank call and hanging up. Yeah, well, it came from the idea of, you know, it came out of Fernando saying he he really wanted to include um, a scene in Lampedusa um, Mm -hmm. where the Pope had gone down to um, basically wash the feet of... of, uh, you know, migrants had washed up on the on the shores of the Mediterranean, mm. um, and if you've seen the YouTube clips uh, of his visits down there, um, you know he's he's washing washing the feet of them of these um, these asylum seekers, and they've all got tears running down their face. They can't believe that the, one of the most powerful men in the world is washing their feet. Mm. So. Um, so the idea came out of how do we get him down to Lampedusa, and, and but also, you know, it, it's an entry point to the movie. We wanted to upset um, expectations and uh, and uh, not give people, uh, uh, you know, a, a heavy-handed, dry um, portrait of these men, but a, but a fully dimensional, dimensionalized three three um, portrait. Um, so. Uh, I think it's effective. We're told by audiences that you know once they've seen that scene, they feel like ah, we're in safe hands, um, which is it's what you want with any movie is to establish early your kind of control and allow the audience to relax and, and give them that feeling of um, <clears throat> that the tone has been established and um, and that it's going to be a good ride from here on in. I think it's a wonderful script for screenwriters to look at because you do so much with one page and it's not a hurried play- page and it's not a page that's full of exposition. It's just a very simple, I think it's one page and maybe two or three lines on the next page that just gets across who this person is, his humility, and also just the tone of this movie. It's really beautifully done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, 
No, I had a I had a, a professor say it's a teachable screenplay. Mm. I'd never heard that phrase before, but I thought it was a high compliment. You know, the other foothold that I think brings everybody in and makes us just realize we're we're among empathetic humans is uh, "Dancing Queen" and realizing that that's just a yeah. song that everyone likes. How did you choose yeah. that? How did you choose that song to be the song that he's whistling? I don't know. I was kind of traumatized by that song when I was 16 <laughs> when I went to a school dance. And I, I was sort of, um, I won, uh, it was called Spin the Bottle Competition. And um, whoever, the, so they spun a bottle and whoever it pointed at had to go and choose a girl and dance in front of a, a combined high schools, boys and girls high schools. <laughs> and the song came up, Dancing Queen. This girl was about uh, two foot taller than I was. And we had to sort of stagger around in each other's arms. And you know, under the under the eyes of about a, you know six hundred other other teenagers, and um, so um, you know that's always been an important song for me. And I wanted to establish in that scene that he was a man of the people, and if he was going to whistle something, it wouldn't be a Gregorian chant; it would be um, something like Dancing Queen. Um, after all, he you know it's, he was a bouncer at a tango club in Argentina when he was young. <laughs> He'd fallen and he knew what it was to fall in love with a woman and have his first kiss. So he, you know, he's very atypical as a as a pope. Is there any evidence that the pope is a fan of ABBA, or is that just something that you you needed something? No, I invented that. I needed something. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that you've been down this road before. How did this compare to the past scripts that you've written? And you're on an incredible run. I mean, for the last several years, you've had basically one a year. Um, mm. that's really in awards contention again and again. Can you sort of talk about your process and the groove that you've gotten into? Um, yeah, it's, it's um, richly, richly rewarding to, to, um, to be able to work on such sort of weighty material. Um, and I try to bring a sort of lightness of touch to it. But, um, but also um, to... Um, Make you look again at, at an iconic figure that, in a way that um, subverts expectation, um, and then you know, and then create roles um, that will give an actor you know um, the chance to really show what they can do. So you show them in all kinds of emotions: fear, love, anger, sadness, happiness. And um, if you can allow great actors to run the gamut of those emotions within the context of a, of a story with epic kind of importance, um, it tends to, it seems to have, te- to have generated awards attention um, for the last few years. Um, it's it's not by design. Um, I just follow my own curiosity into some pretty obscure corners, you know, of, of, of history. Um, you know, doing a movie about two old men in dresses talking about God is not an obvious, you know, follow-up to Freddie Mercury. Um, but, um, or maybe it is. Um, um, but it's, you know, I just, I trust my instincts and um, and those instincts can be a little eccentric sometimes. And But, um, you know, if you go into it with, um, with real, you know, passionate curiosity um, and do your, do your homework, um, then usually, you know, I find that I'm able to find an interesting story in there. Do your scripts tend to start with questions? Is it things that you just want to know more about so you read a book or Google? Yeah, it's, it's something something hooks me. There's usually there's a question, and um, 
and and in pursuit of that answer, then I, I begin my research, and and uh, and and I'm not always initially sure about what the shape of the story is, or even if there's a viable movie here. Um, but for the ones that I end up working on, you know, it's there's a sort of internal ratchet click where you go, ah, I know, I know what this is now. I can see the shape of the story. I can see its beginning, middle, and end, and. Um, and once I have the sense of that, I'm 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 pretty confident now at this point in my career that I can, I can I can attack it and pull it off. Um, as to whether anyone will then make that movie, that's another question. But um, <laughs> you know, I've been I've been very blessed in the last few years, not not only with working with extraordinary you know filmmakers, directors, production designers, cameramen, but um, extraordinary actors and. Um, I can't tell you how thrilling it is to have seen, you know, every one of my, you know, lead actors in the last three movies, you know, win the Oscar for Best Actor. Um, Amazing. I mean, this just couldn't, this could never have been predicted. Um, Amazing. But, uh, Amazing. yeah, it's been, um, it's been quite miraculous. And then this year to see the work of Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price, which is, um, just as deserving as any of the others uh, actors I've been working with for attention. It's really phenomenal. I wouldn't think of either of them for either of those roles, and they're both absolutely perfect. Yeah, they are. It's, what What was the question that you had about Freddie Mercury or about Queen that got you started on Bohemian Rhapsody? There was a different one. Uh, of, hmm. of you know, uh, if we think of these four, last four films, Pope's being the fourth. Um, uh, the Freddie Mercury was an incoming job, so I got a call from uh, uh, a, a producer I knew called Dennis O'Sullivan, and um, he'd been working for many years on this project, but couldn't quite crack crack the movie, and uh, and said, "Would I take a take a shot at it?" And it was pretty much a last roll of the dice for for um, Dennis and his his boss Graham King. Um, and I said, gee, well, I don't know much about Queen or Freddie Mercury, so, um, but you do. So while we're on this phone call, just tell me what you know about them. Tell me their story. So he proceeded to tell me the story of Queen and Freddie Mercury. And at the end of it, I said, I, I really don't see the problem. You just told me the movie. <laughs> and, he, and he said, really? And I said, yeah, look, I'd change a couple of things, but essentially this is, I can see the whole outlines of this thing. So he said, well, we'd love you to take a shot at it then. So that 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 the, the sort of eureka moment was probably that phone call. I I know that no one likes this question because you want to sort of savor the success that you're having now. So, given that you should be savoring all of the success you're having now and enjoying this moment, mm -hmm. can you talk about what you're working on next? I can. Yeah, I'm working on um, the Bee Gees, um, with Graham King again and Steven Spielberg. Um, and um, it's hugely excited about uh, getting into that one. Um, I think it has um, all the potential of Bohemian Rhapsody, um, an extraordinary catalogue of music, and a wonderful human story um, of these of these four brothers, you know, who came out on a sailing ship from Australia back mm. to Britain, and um, and um, made an enormous impact in the history of popular music. You're kind of a disco guy. I I'm I'm lots of different guys. Yeah, I can <laughs> I can, I can disco, and uh, um, my musical tastes are very wide, very broad. Um, 
no, I, I love the Bee Gees music. I, um, I think you know one of the one of the soundtracks of many many lives, many of our lives. Um, Absolutely. It hits across four decades, and and there's so many of their songs that were recorded by other people that um, you, you know I, most people don't realize that, that the Gibbs wrote them. Things like Islands in the Stream, which is the yeah. the biggest yeah. selling um, country music song of all time, um, that was written by the Gibbs Gibb brothers. The, what was the hook for you? Oh, I was walking in Hyde Park and my mobile rang and it was Graham King and he said uh, <laughs> he said two he said two, two things to think about two 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 words, um, well four words. Um, Bee Gees. I went ah. Uh-huh. And and he said, and uh, Steven Spielberg, and I went, okay, um, let me sit down. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I'll ask is, we do a regular feature called "Things I've Learned as a Movie Maker," where we mm. just ask people to share anything that they've discovered in the process. Not things like, you know, go for it or just sit down and give it your best shot, but actual logistical problems that you've overcome that you wish somebody had told you about earlier in your career. Do you have any yeah. suggestions like that? Uh, yeah, I would say know your ending. Hmm. Um, because once you know your ending, then it kind of gives you a blueprint for everything that will precede it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Anthony McCartan, screenwriter of Two Popes, and our earlier interview with Alan Cumming. If you like that, if you made it this far, it seems like you like our stuff. And I wanted to give you a special invitation uh, for the holiday season. If you go to moviemaker.com slash subscriptions and use promo code XMASMM, moviemaker.com slash subscriptions, promo code XMASMM, you will get 25% off a tier subscription and 40% off a three-year subscription to Movie Maker Magazine. Movie Maker, if you haven't heard of it, is a 26-year-old publication. We are completely free of any corporate interference or weirdness. We're just writing about the art and craft of making movies, and we hope you like it, and we'd love to have your support. Thank you for listening this far and see you next episode.